I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply you end up growing incidentally without, you know, going to school or being taught or being, having, being really explicit or unpleasant. It just, growth happens. Growth happens when positive emotions happen. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Barbara Fredrickson. Barbara is a Keenan Distinguished Professor of Psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she directs the Positive Emotions and Psychophysiology Laboratory. She's an award-winning teacher and also among the most highly cited scientists worldwide. Her books, Positivity and Love 2.0, have been translated into dozens of languages. Barbara has been president of the International Positive Psychology Association, and the Society for Affective Science. In 2017, she was honored with the Tang Prize for Achievements in Psychology, awarded to recognize exceptional career contributions to the well-being of humanity. It's really wonderful to have you here today. Oh, it's great to be here, Sharon. It's wonderful to be in conversation again. I have so many wonderful memories of you in various situations, including like uh, both being on a panel with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and our eyes meeting over like, oh my God, I'm like this is this is kind of intense. Yeah, this is happening. <laughs> yeah, really. 
Yeah. And, uh, oh, um, I think we first met at IMS and um, uh-huh. got to do that Rubin Museum. Yeah, 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 that was great. And I still have, I learned something from you that was, I'll, I'll bring it up. And it, it's still, uh, I think you've since changed your mind, but it changed my thinking. So oh, <laughs> it was <okay>. good. <laughs> cool. Yeah, no, I've learned many things from you, including, I think, we also met early on in a motel I was staying in in, in North Carolina. Um, right. Um, you were giving a talk in, yeah. in my area, and I thought, oh, let me take advantage of this. <laughs> Pick your brain about uh, loving-kindness meditation, which was really new to me at the time. No, it's really wonderful because, you know, I had a very um, kind of classical Buddhist background, not early on when I was living in New York City, but once I'd gone to India as a college student, and one of the features of the early school of, of Buddhism, the, the kind of Buddhism found in countries like Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and it's interesting because it's sort of a uh, principle some people would say about writing, about the craft of writing. You start with a problem, you know, because that's where people generally are at. So they don't feel mm-hmm. isolated. They don't feel alienated from what you're saying. So you start with a problem. And, and you were kind of starting from the positive side of things. And I kept thinking, I'm not used to this. Let's talk about like fear. (laughs) Right. right. Well, I did, I did have a problem in that it was more of a academic intellectual problem, which is why isn't anybody talking about the positive emotions? (laughs) So that was my problem. Yeah. Yeah, It's a good point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it just seemed like part of human nature from a scientific perspective, there was no curiosity about it. That's what mm-hmm. seemed kind of um, exciting to me, actually, because it means there was a lot to do. <laughs> there was a lot mm-hmm. of lot of uh, wide open terrain to explore. So that's really uh, what first drew me there. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's something to be said for all sides of things, you know, of course. But what you're saying is, I think a lot of what the Dalai Lama said to Richie Davidson you know, though those many years ago, like, why is it all, you know, all about anxiety and neuroses? Why isn't there a, kind of a psychological picture of a, a fulfilled human being who is then able to help others and connect to others? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, part of it, I didn't really come at it from the side of, at that point, at the very beginning, of my research into positive emotions wasn't so much about fulfilled human being kind Mm -hmm. of, um, that that's a big interest of mine now. Um, Mm -hmm. but at the very early stages, it was, you know, Richie was part of that first wave of, well, maybe second wave Mm -hmm. of scientists interested in emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, there had been an earlier wave of just very small ripple in the sixties. Um, uh, after, you know, at least, at least 50 years of being totally banished from the science of psychology. Emotions couldn't even be touched because mm. it was like a third rail. Um, uh, not Didn't seem scientific enough for the, a very fledgling field. Um, but when emotions started to get talked about, it was only the serious ones, you know, the anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. Um, even people had whole research programs on disgust and, you know, everything was lumped into happiness and mm-hmm. nobody was studying it. And so that's, um, it really struck me that the theories for why humans evolved to have 
positive emotion or to have emotions in general just didn't fit for the positive mm-hmm. emotions. So we needed to start over and, and kind of understand how they fit into human evolution, um, in a way that made sense, um, of when they occur and, um, you know, cause they're not occurring in life or death situations. So you can't say that positive emotions are about survival in a direct way. So that's where I kind of got curious about, well, maybe they promote survival in an indirect way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. And I appreciate, you know, my own background in the sense that I was uh, suffering a lot when I went to India and it was, very reassuring to hear people acknowledge that in a way and say this is a part of a human life. It's so aberrant. You're not weird. That was mm-hmm. maybe the most important thing. Um, but if I look back at those early conversations, I met so many of my really close friends at my first retreat, mm-hmm. like Joseph Goldstein or Krishna Das, you know, Ram Das. There were any number of people there. Um, and, uh, there was something about the incredible joy we were experiencing just by learning. And uh, I look back at sort of the, I don't know, it was almost like the the minor key of a lot of the conversations. It was like, and then my breath, it like fluttered, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you look back 50 years, you think, do you really care <laughs> that your breath fluttered, you know? But it's like, I did, you know, it's because like, <laughs> I noticed it. Yeah, it could be so, fascinating. Yeah, that's true. And there's, you know, it, what you're pointing out is that there's so many forms of positive emotions, not just, you know, sitting back and saying, ah, oh, I'm happy. You know, it can be, you know, intrigue and awe and, you know, like noticing those small details in your breath. You know, that's fascination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so a lot of the positive emotions we overlook are these sort of learning ones or, Mm-hmm. maybe more intellectual ones rather than, um, you know, uh, enjoying somebody's company is a different kind of positive mm-hmm. emotions. Enjoying beauty in the natural world is a different kind. Yeah, I, I, mean, I quote you, as you know, so often, and I had one editor of one earlier book, I quote you, I have, is it, we were just chatting and I said I have two books coming out in which you feature prominently, at least, at least in one, maybe both, I can't remember. But the earlier books, you know, I had one editor complain saying, you know, why don't you just like send out a newsletter saying people should go read Barbara's books? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a little much, don't you think? <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I, well, I realize when I quote you, I, I tend to say positive states rather uh-huh. than positive emotions. Uh-huh. Because I don't know that many people would recognize fascination as an emotion, for example. Ah, yeah. Or like that complete kind of presence of one's being, no part left out as an emotion. Right, right. You know, I think that's totally reasonable. I think um, we can get in, in science a little hung up on, you know, what's an affect versus what's an emotion versus what's mm-hmm. a feeling <laughs> versus what's a state. I mean, State is wonderful because it's um, open enough, but simply refers to something being transient. You mm-hmm. know, it's a it's a moment um, that has some pleasantness to it. Um, I think you know, in my own thinking and writing, I'm I'm um, also um, 
stepping back a little bit to focus more on the um, just pleasant moment, mm-hmm. you know, uh, as opposed to using the word emotion on it. But, um, you know, it's once you kind of get um, known for something in a particular phrasing, it sticks with you whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, the Fredrickson theory that I quote most often is one of broaden and build because it, it fits so perfectly with my experience, my experience in, in practice and um, meditation and just life, you know, to see um, the, the way, you know, the word pleasure can seem a little self-satisfied to us, you know, like right. you're just going for pleasure that's selfish, that's very indulgent, you know, like, but um, that idea of, of broadening, of opening, of expanding, of being, uh, having a bigger, it could even be like a worldview. It doesn't have to be emotional uh-huh. in our ordinary sense of the term. Um, it's so freeing and allows for so many possibilities. Yeah, and, and in a way, um, it what I found is it helps people give uh, some due respect to uh, positive states that you know our our culture is not one that glorifies feeling good. It glorifies mm-hmm. achievement is one big thing. It glorifies materialism as another, um, and so when your eyes are focused on those kinds of things, they just, you know, uh, emotions are just speed bumps that get in the way. (laughs) And um, so this helps, I think, build the case that, you know, we ignore these states at our own peril. We ignore them um, and we don't grow as much. We ignore Mm -hmm. them and we can't be truly alive, you know. Um, that we gain a lot out of redirecting our attention to these more subtle, pleasant states. Yeah. And it's, you know, part of it, I think, is that kind of Protestant work ethic. You know, we need to work hard and never play and dance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there's, yeah, I think there's there's a lot missed about human nature from that. But one of the things that I think is, uh, one of the things I think is so fascinating is, you know, I come at this from an evolutionary um, biology, evolutionary psychology perspective. Mm. And then when I got to know your work and other work in, you know, Buddhist psychology and, you know, contemplative practices, I'm like, wow, just focusing on what is it like to be human can get to the same answers, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, from a, um, a very different perspective. So I've loved seeing the consilience between um, mm-hmm. contemplative um, wisdom and what comes out of science. I mean, it's it's really a, a source of awe in a way. So when you began your uh, your scholarship, it was in the in the realm of evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, that was kind of the backdrop to the beginnings of emotion science or the rekindling of emotion science in the mm-hmm. late 80s and, and 1990s. And I got my PhD in 1990 and started a postdoc in emotion. One of the reasons why the National Institute of Health invested in a postdoc program in emotions was there, it was not being taught in any graduate programs. So no, there was never a class on the science of emotions back then. 
So mm-hmm. there was a lot of um, building and catching up to do to get people trained to to work in this area. And so I was lucky to be part of the first wave of that. It's so interesting. It's hard to imagine now what's left over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's you know, you mentioned you know one of my yeah two of the organizations that I've um, been part of leading the International Positive Psych Association and the Society for Affective Science, neither of those would have even come close to existing when I was in graduate mm-hmm. school. They, you know, nobody had even thought about looking at the positive psychology or even emotions. So it's, it's been kind of fun to help build new corners of, of my field. Oh yeah. And was like the theory, uh, of broadened builds was built on uh, clinical experience, on your own experience, or uh, on models that were just beginning to emerge then? Yeah, it was not clinical experience or my own experience. It really was from um, trying to understand from a logical evolutionary perspective, how could these pleasant, uplifted, momentary states have been valuable to our human ancestors. I mean, there was one take that was prominent at the time in evolutionary psychology, which was implicitly arguing that, well, negative emotions are about survival and positive emotions are about reproduction. And, you know, evolution depends on both of those. Mm -hmm. And that just, you know, struck me as wrong because not all positive emotions have to do with (laughs) mate selection or mate Mm -hmm. retention. You know, we feel good in lots of contexts that have nothing to do with procreation or, you know, that side of things. So I was puzzling through how could these uh, pleasant states, you know, in what way might they have been related to um, survival? And I, uh, one of the first findings I had was that positive emotions helped to undo lingering negative emotions kind of like they help us set a re you know push a reset button <laughs> once we're mm-hmm. kind of going down a downward spiral positive emotions can kind of help us pull back from that and very early as in my career i uh went to a conference scientific meeting and i i put out the question maybe this is one of the functions of positive emotions and you know Actually, the broaden and build theory came from somebody really taking me to task on that. And the audience is like, you're using the word function too loosely. We could call mm-hmm. it an effect. It's not a function. Mm-hmm. You need to make a more serious argument about function. And I, I, I took that to heart and I thought, okay, let me read everything I can about what is, what are the, you know, the guardrails or the parameters needed to make an evolutionary functional argument. And Doing that and reading all the little bit of science that was out there on positive emotions, like Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow, and there was this other work by a scholar named Alice Eisen on creativity, how positive emotions made people more creative and generous. And putting those pieces together is what led to the broaden and build theory. So it really came out of somebody criticizing me for being a little too swift in saying that something could have been a a function of positive emotions. And they were right, because I no longer think that that undoing quality of positive emotions is is a function. It's more of a, what's called a byproduct. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, positive emotions would do that if they broadened. 
you know, to the extent mm-hmm. that broadening is the uh, the uh, antidote to narrowing, then there would be some kind of resilience or, or undoing mm-hmm. factor that would come out of that. But it's it's um, that'd be more of a byproduct than a than a direct uh, function. The function I ended up arguing was that these moments of broadened awareness function as nutrients for growth. They um, build our resources, our resilience, our relationships, and all of those things matter when you're later faced with threats to life and limb, you know, mm-hmm. that you have more kind of tools in your tool belt to get out of a jam mm-hmm. because of the previous moments you've had of, of positive emotions. Um, that's really consistent with the research on why play is so prominent in youth and of many different species, because there's so much to learn <laughs> when you first arrive on uh, in life, that mm-hmm. uh, play is a way to, to help um, kids and juveniles of any species get up the learning curve uh, quickly. So that's, that's, where, that's where growth is without trying to grow. That's the cool part. It's just Oh, that was fun. Let's do that again. (laughs) You end up, you end up growing incidentally without, you know, going to school or being taught or being, having, being really explicit or unpleasant. It just growth happens. Growth happens when positive emotions happen. So that's, that's what, that's what led me to, to see those consequences and, you know, broadening and that opening that goes with positive emotions. That's like that you know, momentary flutter in the breath, that's a transient thing. Mm-hmm. But the build piece, what's cool about it in my mind is those resources that you build, those friendships that you build, those mm-hmm. are those aren't transient. Those are durable. Mm-hmm. And so those are what stick with you no matter what you're feeling. You know, you you built that those friendships at that first retreat, you know, out of joy and shared fascination. But you know, it's not like you can only tap into them when you're joyful. <laughs> you can tap mm-hmm. into them anytime. So resources have this uh, enduring quality to them that um, that's that's the ticket to how it would have influenced our ancestors' human survival. Well, you know, there's a lot I want to respond to just um, even briefly in what you said. Like, for one thing, your description of hearing that criticism from another scientist reminded me of why I started using the, the term positive states because mm-hmm. I wanted to include something like equanimity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like a state of balance, which we normally think of as indifference or yeah. coldness, even it's not very positive, but it is actually very positive. Right. That balance can receive and see options. And, you know, if you think about just an ordinary, for some people, daily experience of going to a meeting and some people are extremely fixed on their point of view and right. the, the resolution to the problem they want to see. And there's like no space in there. Right. Any another option. But if someone has some balance and some ability to give and take, then there's openness and so much can happen. And so I saw that as a very positive state and I thought, why not include that? So I guess yeah. also to say scientists taught me a lot um, about the power of intention, you know, like, both the trust and the intention of the other as they're offering criticism. Because I have seen that, of course, so many times where someone's done a presentation and then there's silence and then whoever's done the presentation takes a breath, you know, and then they get right. into by all these people like, well, 
are you sure, Dr. Davidson, that, that Monk's eyebrows didn't wiggle, you know? His <laughs> physical movement would provide the same kind of effect as what you're saying is happening in the brain. You know, it's kind of remarkable. And, and you know, in the best case scenario, which I have seen and honor so much, you know, everyone's just looking for the truth. Right. Everyone just one wants to see what's true. In the worst case scenario, I would imagine... One is sitting there thinking, I wonder if they want my grant, you know? Like, right, and right. And it's not a, a wholesome process. Exactly, yeah. There are so many different ways to get kind of um, pulled down into the, the, you know, unwholesome incentives, you know, mm-hmm. of any career, I'm, I'm, I'm certain. But yeah, one of the things that I love about what I do is that, you know, with the concept of academic freedom, I get to study what I think is the next important question. And I'm not, um, you know, I can, I can follow the clues to what interests me without, you know, once you are granted tenure at a university without concern for what, what's the career outcome if I do this? <laughs> what's the mm-hmm. career outcome if I do that? It's, you know, it's like my job is to follow the questions wherever they go. And that's the fun part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, um, and, you know, my, because I started getting interested in potentially the one of the reasons I first wanted to talk to you uh, all those years ago is that I got this idea in my head that loving kindness meditation, maybe I could use that to test my theory, mm-hmm. you know, because I had, I had been in a, uh, gone through a, f- uh, a few years where I was testing the broaden hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And that's something you can do in a laboratory study because you're looking at the momentary cognitive effects of an emotion. Mm-hmm. But when I wanted to switch to test the build part, which is to me, I mean, in that, once the theory came together is like, well, that's the consequential part. Does it really change people? The positive, does your, you know, uh, daily diet of positive emotions lead to a new you six months later? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I had started on that path trying to think, well, what am I going to do to get people to increase their positive emotions on a daily basis? And had a couple things that in theory should have worked and we did studies on them and they didn't work. And then just by chance, I was introduced to loving kindness meditation. It was mm. like, ah, oh, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Somebody has done this already. Not only somebody, but you know, it's going back millennia. So yeah, yeah. it was uh, sort of, uh, realization that I could use this ancient wisdom to test modern theory, and the 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 pursuit of that was so so rewarding and gratifying, personally and professionally. I remember those days too, of course, because it was almost unknown that somebody would be interested in research and loving kindness. It was things that had been maybe one study on physical pain, or yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. and um. And that was a really, you know, small one, intriguing one, and um, actually done by somebody who I'd um, met uh, early in my career. So there was, you know, it's a small world phenomena. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, yeah, that was, um, it was, there was, I actually was very much inspired by Richie Davidson, though, because he had just started working with the mind, you know, creating a mind mm-hmm. and life group. And I thought, Boy, if Richie can study meditation, I can study love and kindness yeah, meditation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, you know, he uh, brings a lot of credibility to that and it sort of uh, paved the way 
for serious science on meditation. And so I just opened up a, uh, helped to open up a new corner of that, looking at the, you know, not just mindfulness, but loving kindness as a practice. So do you have a, <laughs> I love being on this, this end of things. Do you have a definition of loving kindness? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Or love, um, for that matter. Yeah, I think I should stick to love and let you do the loving okay. kindness. But um, actually, the the decade or so I spent studying loving kindness meditation formally, and you've been a great help in that because you know after my first study in that, I realized, wait a minute, I need to stay a little truer to the ancient practices, and you agreed to be a consultant or like make sure I don't. Mm-hmm do a, a scientist detour off one, <laughs> the beaten path. Mm-hmm. And, um, but all that work with loving kindness meditation got me to really rethink what the emotion of love is. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and that was in parts inspired by previous emotion theorists saying that love is a pleasant state that is co-experienced by people. Um, and so the definition that I've been using for love is when positive states resonate between and among people so that, um, we aren't simply being an one individual feeling good, but it's a, it's a two or three or group or whole stadium. <laughs> you know, I tend to work with, you know, pairs of people, mm-hmm. but, um, pairs of people feeling the same thing at the same time. And, you know, here's another place where Western science really favors the study of individuals. I mean, I'm in psychology. It's often defined as the study of individuals. Um, And we uh, had thought of, you know, when one person feels something and the other person does too, we the language was around emotion contagion, that one person's emotion was caught by another. And what I um, began to think is like, we got to step up a level of analysis here and look at what's happening between people. It's not really one person having it and another person catching it. It's being co-created by by and between people. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I am venturing to say is how. your body experiences love as a co-experience of positive emotions. Now that's not what our culture calls love. Our culture calls love for romance and marriage and commitment and loyalty. But um, from a um, uh, broaden and build perspective, what I'm arguing is that uh, positive emotions that are co-experienced with others broaden more and build faster and bigger. And so love becomes uh, uh, an especially important positive emotional state because it's where the most growth and openness lie uh, at its best. Um, and so by having those co-experience positive emotions, yeah, you build friendships, you build bonds. Sometimes you build a lifelong soulmate you know, relationship. And those are the things that we as a culture tend to look at and point to and say, Oh, that's love. Those relationships are love. And I'm just trying to look a little earlier in the process and say, well, maybe the moments that kindled that can be considered love too. 
Mm-hmm. So that's the definition of love I, I put forward is that it's co-experienced positive states that not just any co-experienced positive state, it has to have a kindness in it. It has to have this mutual care and concern. And the science is uh, showing us that when people are in kindness synchrony with positive emotions there's also a biological synchrony mm. people's heart rates and sweat glands rise and fall at the same time um and so there it really does make you question whether the emotion is belonging to the group or the pair as opposed to to an individual um so it's um it's looking at emotions and, and positive states as collectively created. And so where loving kindness really influenced my thinking, the, the traditional contemplative practice mm-hmm. is that, you know, when positive states are blended with kindness, care, and concern for another person, they, um, they're elevated even further. You know, it's not like, you know, what would be excluded from this definition is two people laughing and making fun of another person or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Something that has a kind of a ill tempered or ill spirit or, mm-hmm. lack, you know, um, uh, even a hierarchy, you know, um, this, this kind of positivity resonance, um, kind of blurs, uh, the boundaries between people so that hierarchies, um, kind of slip out of you and you just feel mm-hmm. like you're connecting, you know, um, as opposed to following. Um, so I don't know, that's, that's getting a little, <laughs> you asked no, the I, I like question, I gave you a long, no, no, it was a wonderful. Long I love to, you know, in part because, um, I sort of followed after you, I think in that, uh, in the traditional teachings, the term is loving kindness. You don't really hear love. Uh-huh. Maybe in, uh, later evolutions of Buddhist teaching, you would, but not so much here. And I've had scholars and translators come to me and say, "Stop being so cutesy about it. You know, you just mean love. Just say love. Like, what does loving kindness mean anyway? You know." Um, but it's a very complicated term for us, and we mean so many different things when we say love. And sometimes it really, frankly, is a medium of exchange. Like, I will love you as long as you know. Right. Love me in return. I would love myself as long as I never make a mistake. And we know the fragility and like the sheer breakability of that state. It's not quite the same as what I mean by loving kindness, which is almost like a resource within ourselves we can reach for, but rarely do. Mm -hmm. You know, and so what is that resource? The um, traditional uh, translation would go on to describe it as friendship. But I tend to shy away from that because, um, as we all have seen, you know, there's very sad, even heartbreaking situations where one might come genuinely to a state of love for someone else, but for a whole variety of different reasons of discernment and intelligence and self-care, it may not be wise to spend time with them. Ah, yeah. It may not be that smart, you know, to especially if your habit has been to always kind of defer to the needs of another and not really take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need a little bit of space or caution or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, so I, I don't, like people often say to me, I don't know about developing 
greater loving kindness because then I could only say yes. I can oh, only smile. Yeah. I can only be sweet. Yeah. I can only let them move back in. I can only give them more money. You know, uh, and it's of course not true that there's a whole variety of action that's available to us that we might take one kind or another based on history and discernment and balance. Like, what about a little loving kindness for ourselves at the same time, you know? Right, right. Um, you know, so I don't like the thought of the state or the trait being wedded to a certain kind of action. Right, right. And I think that's um, uh, something of, you know, seeing it as a quality of the moment or a quality mm-hmm. of your heart or a quality of, you know, a way of being is allows it to be something that can be cultivated, but isn't always going to be present. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be recultivated. Um, and so, you know, that's yeah. where the practices come in. Um, uh, yeah. And actually one of the uh, interesting pieces was, you know, having done the work on, you know, how does loving kindness meditation, how does mindfulness meditation of, affect people's daily interactions and daily emotions. Um, you know, I'm arguing that love is something that is co- um, a co-experience of positive emotions between people. And yet these practices that we do, you know, as an individual mm-hmm. help us cultivate them. But it's kind of, it just, in a way, I feel like it, what it does is it builds your capacity for mm-hmm. connection later. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's not... Um, that the loving kindness as a practice is a practice is you're practicing mm-hmm. for the, for the rest of the day, mm-hmm. <laughs> for the rest yeah, of the yeah. life, you know, not, yeah, yeah. not necessarily the benefit isn't all in the, the sitting moments. That's right. In fact, I use the word when I'm asked, how do you define loving kindness? I say connection. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, you know, it's deep knowing Yeah, that our yeah. lives have something to do with one another. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really compatible with the way I've been thinking about it too. And it, you know, and I can't tell at this point, you know, whether I got these ideas in part from just listening and absorbing what you say <laughs> all these times. So there is some who knows where it came from first feeling. <laughs> Cause yeah, there's yeah, I loved your book, Faith, you know, that yeah. idea of placing the heart on mm-hmm. a particular concept or idea or just you know having that you know connection to um an idea or um faith that you know a relationship will work out eventually or you know just anything like that it's to see that as a heart quality as opposed to a mind quality Mm -hmm. really important i'll tell you something else you're you're very famous quoted for in uh and Buddhist circles, so to speak, or meditation circles. Um, it doesn't have to be Buddhist, but uh, in the Buddhist psychology, which is one of those very exacting psychologies, you know, where fine differentiations for us in English are like distinct, you know, differences between two states in another language. And you wouldn't kind of confuse the two, but we do here. Uh-huh. And, you know, the two words that are often used synonymously as though they were exactly the same, or, or loving kindness and compassion. Uh-huh. And people often ask what the difference is, and you said something once, apparently. <laughs> like, uh, uh, it's always interesting trying to nail down the source of someone's actual quote. 
Uh-huh. I was just talking to an author to get her permission for a quote, which sadly I did take right off the internet, so there was no attribution, like this page of this book or something. Right, right. So I got in touch with her and I asked her, and she was quiet for a moment. She said, sounds like me. I can't tell you where I said it. So maybe don't use it. <laughs> so great. Right. Right. Um, but uh, I, my vague memory is that it was, you were at a conference somewhere and someone asked you about compassion. You said something like compassion is love that's looking at suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And I, what's interesting about that is um, I can remember the light bulb that where I, where I got that concept from was I'd heard a presentation by Jimpa, the um, translator for His Holiness the Dalai Lama, at a compassion meeting, the Science of Compassion meeting um, held by some of the folks who do a compassion center at Stanford. Mm -hmm. Um, But the meeting was in um, Colorado, up in the mountains. It was gorgeous. And uh, so the idea actually came out of uh, contemplative scholarship. And it occurred to me that, you know, of course, all the four noble states or whatever, the the loving kindness, equanimity, compassion, uh, and uh, mudita. I named a cat mudita <laughs> because I love that idea of you joy did. and joy. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And um, uh, it, one thing that he had emphasized was that, you know, in different traditions, different ones of those, you know, four noble states kind of take the center stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had mentioned that, you know, one perspective is that, you know, the loving kindness is in the center of it. And whether um, whether you're faced with someone's suffering or someone's good fortune, would turn that loving kindness into either compassion or mudita, the joy in in someone else's um, good fortune, and so that's uh, that you know helped me see this sort of aha around that mm-hmm. love can be the same concept in different in in different contexts, and sometimes. Our contexts, our awareness of somebody else's suffering, and then it, the the love that you would have, you know, trying to be cultivating a warmth and kindness towards them is just going to bend towards compassion, um, uh, and or bend towards delight if things are going well for them. And it occurred to me that the dimension of another person's suffering to another person's good fortune—that's kind of out there in the world. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, you don't really have that much control over that. What you do have more control over is your own inner state of kindness and connection. And then when you become aware of what's happening with the other person, that love gets uh, transformed to compassion. That love gets transformed to sympathetic joy. Um, so that really struck me as a helpful way of looking at things. And so it's, it tickles me to see me being uh, attributed with mm-hmm. something from, from a scientist perspective, because I was just, I know, in, very much influenced by the contemplative scholarship there. That's great. It, it just says it and it's perfect. And it brings up, of course, those four uh, dimensions of, you know, the fulfilled or uh, 
um, a life that is manifesting the power of having seen clearly. And that would be loving kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy, which is joy in the happiness of others instead of hearing about or witnessing someone else's success or good fortune and being overcome by that voice that so often arises within us that says, oh no, you know, it's like too much. You don't deserve a lot, you know. <laughs> um, I do, but you know, and uh, we actually hold it in a different perspective. We're actually happy for the other person. So it's enormously freeing. Um, and then there's equanimity, which is the last of the four after loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy, which is really about balance. And it's about wisdom. It's perspective. It's sort of like the positive aspect of it wouldn't be like giddiness. It would be like almost like relief. Yeah. yeah. We get older, we get wiser. We see that's not worth holding on to. And it's such a relief. Yeah. So love- not hold on, you know. Yeah, I love your connection there to older and wiser because the when I think of where um, equanimity finds its way into the language of you know experimental psychology or mm-hmm. you know, the science of psychology is it's as acceptance um, and one um, key finding over and over again is that older people tend to be happier than younger people. Mm. Um, you know, which kind of strikes some people as odd because they know some curmudgeonly old person <laughs> that they really? can't let go of. But um, the the science says over and over again that age is typically associated with more happiness. And there was some great research to show that when people have acceptance as their primary way of regulating their emotions, that they become happier. So, and that older people tend to have greater acceptance over the situations they find themselves in, the emotions that they feel. And so, um, uh, there's less kind of getting caught and stuck in Mm -hmm. (laughs) one, you know, negative state or jealousy or, you know, why didn't this go my way? You know, um, there's this, it's sort of like after you've lived a few decades, you're like, oh yeah, this is how this, this kind of thing unfolds. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and you can have that a- acceptance, but you know, you can also cultivate. Mm. And so it's like, how can you get that good stuff of being old earlier? You know, um, I think that's where a uh, practice of, you know, the meditation, all kinds can be really useful. Mm-hmm. Kind of, kind of give, bring us the wisdom early. We don't have to wait for it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think of, I, uh, acceptance is sort of wide open to take the good and the bad and you know the then and not be sort of stuck on making them last but just yeah there there it is um but there's also another um layer in there where uh some one of my former um postdocs actually did was interested in the difference between um, mindfulness, mindful awareness, and savoring, and discovered that you know we can distinguish between the two, measure them separately, and the best sort of emotional profile of happiness and and being resourceful shows up when people can score high on both of them. Mm-hmm. That you know you need to be aware enough to notice a good thing is happening. Um, before you can savor it so you 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 can't 
have benefit from savoring without mindfulness, but mindfulness mm-hmm. without a sense of, oh, when it's good, let me linger there a little mm-hmm. bit. Let me see if I can prolong it a little bit. You know, having that attitude towards a positive experience also um, uh, produces a, a better emotional well-being profile. Um, but it doesn't mean make it last forever. It doesn't mean, you right. know, I'm going to pin this really. down and, and, you know, capture it as a constant state. Cause you know, one of the, the, you know, what, just going back to our discussion about states versus traits. I mean, you, you cannot wear happiness like a uniform. It's not, mm-hmm. a, it's not something that can be um, forced and put on. And that's actually the most um, kind of, you know, I feel like a little bit of knowledge about positive psychology is a dangerous thing because that's what people start to do. They think they have to be positive all the time and they think that they, you know, they always have to have a smile on their face. And like you said, you know, people think of their first blush uh, assumption about loving kindness is that you always have to be nice. Right. Um, right. right. There's no always about it because yeah. these things can't last. They are states, you know, yeah. they come and go. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating, and it's so important because there's so much potential happiness and power there, you know, and to think about kind of shunning those, or closing those doors prematurely, or, you know, shunning those actions and behavior in terms of meditation practices, you know, before you really try it, it seems such a shame to at least see if you feel relieved of some of that suffering, and um, maybe that is also why they say the Buddha taught very gradual paths sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like let's do this one for a while. Like let's just practice generosity for a while. Later we'll talk about something else. You know, and later came about and then they talked about something else. And then you know, one day they started meditating and um Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think just uh the that sort of slow uh indirect path towards the these insights is uh there's so much wisdom in that because if you if you um say exactly where you're gonna go there can just be so much reactance mm. you know <laughs> it's kind of remind me of parenting a little bit <laughs> you know yeah yeah so interesting and then when you um uh wrote your book the the second book love 2.0 Creating happiness and health in moments of connection. Um, the other thing I really emphasize more than anything to try to dissuade people from being afraid and uh, that they can be manipulated in some way by that kind of practice or hurt um, in, in some strange fashion. The thing I emphasize is that we're not trying to force ourselves to feel something we don't feel ever. We're trying to change the way we pay attention to see if something happens. So. Example I always use um, is if you're the kind of person who comes to the end of the day and you evaluate yourself almost like, how did I do today? Let's just say, mm-hmm. let's say pretty much all you can remember is the mistakes you made and what you did wrong and what you could have done better. And, you know, the, the basis of the loving kindness is not to ignore or be dismissive of the other side, but it's unlikely that is all we did today. It's like, doesn't have to be grandiose, doesn't have to be magnificent, but if you're breathing, you're kind of doing okay, you know? <laughs> exactly, by definition. Yeah. 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 No, I think um we get a similar uh uh kind of misperception a lot of times about positive psychology or 
emotion regulation sometimes that you can um, go straight for the feeling and try to uh, create it. One thing I like to point out to people is that, you know, oh, other people are amazing sincerity detectors. We humans are amazing sincerity detectors. So if you think you're successfully <laughs> conveying, you know, forced positivity in that way, you're fooling yourselves because people can see the difference between something that's authentic versus, you know, somehow insincere or manipulative or just put on. So, you know, we shouldn't even try to go there. And then mm-hmm. another way to think about it, I, I learned this analogy from um, a scholar who studied uh, creativity saying that, you know, creativity is not something that you can just, you know, there's no formula for it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of Mm -hmm. a natural process that you can set the conditions for it, but you can't strong arm it. And it occurred to me that that's really the, the, the right metaphor. And he was a pilot and he, he referred to that as, um, that's what you do when you land a plane, you don't fly the plane to the ground. You set the conditions like, I don't know, has something to do with the flaps on the wings. I'm not a pilot. I don't know. But it's gravity that lands the plane. You're just setting mm-hmm. the conditions for a safe landing. For gravity as a natural uh, force is going to do the landing. Um, the pilot is just setting the conditions. So what we try to do for uh, experiencing positive emotions or positive connections or positivity resonance or love is just setting the conditions and that can be the way you attend the way you you know try to create situations where you can see people face to face where you might be able to co-experience something um the way you you know check in and make eye contact with somebody and let them know it's a safe moment by kind of being warm about that you know because eye contact is not necessarily a good thing it can make people feel monitored or stared mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. and so you know the way it becomes warm and friendly is eye contact with a smile <laughs> you know nice. um so there's you know there's there's things we can do slow down attend connect in person that um can uh help us set the stage for these um uh, important positive states to surface because they're they're a natural force like gravity and if we set the stage right uh, really beautiful i i want to come back in a moment to the field of loving kindness research but kind of go sideways for a moment because i know um you also did work on what sometimes in um meditation we call uh short moments many times like uh, kind of mindful activities rather than even 10 minute periods of formal sitting meditation. Uh, I wonder yeah. if we could just talk about that one study for a moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this actually um, was a product of me uh, realizing that I needed some uh, better advisors or just advisors at all on people who really knew contemplative practice and were teachers. And so that um, the early stages of my um, designing the, these larger scientific studies on what are the benefits of, of loving kindness meditation versus mindfulness meditation and, and, and so on was where you were there mm-hmm. as a sort of the loving kindness um, key experts. And then a couple people who were the teachers, Sumi, who you introduced me to. 
uh, Sumi Kim and um, Mary Brantley and Jeff Brantley helped really guide me through the mindfulness literature. And just in designing uh, the study, um, the instructors, the meditation instructors were saying, well, we, we, we teach this informal mindfulness. Shouldn't you be measuring that too? You know, um, and so it's like, oh, right, of course, that's a key part of the the teaching. And we were only measuring, uh, initially planning to measure formal meditation practice. So we fashioned a question in the daily reports that we had people do as they were, you know, in a six-week meditation workshop. Um, after a- asking people, you know, did you practice today in a in a formal way? We also asked people, were there any moments where you um, were found yourself um, trying to be mindful in the moment, or trying to be, you know, um, loving in the moment, uh, or caring, compassionate in the moment? And did you did those informal moments happen not at all, one time, two times, three times, or so many times you couldn't count? So the key for us in measuring it was that we had asked about the frequency of it. Um, and that enabled us to do this kind of analysis that is a, basically akin to describing a dose response reaction. So, um, how much, how much you engaged in those informal, uh, practices and how much benefit in terms of day-to-day positive emotions, positive connections with other people. And so, you know, we had already, uh, published a study to say that formal meditation practice, there's a dose response relationship. The more minutes you put in, the more benefit there mm-hmm. is in terms of emotional well-being of the day. And so we did another paper after that to say, oh, okay, let's look at this informal practice me- uh, measure and found the same dose response relationship. And this was even after statistically taking into control how much formal practice people engaged in the informal practice, those moments of mindfulness, those moments of caring. Um, you know, I, I, my favorite example of this in my own life is like, I'm driving to work and I see somebody running and, um, and I like to run myself very slowly, but still, mm-hmm. and then I, you know, instead of thinking, Oh man, you get to run today and I don't, I think have a good run. <laughs> Hope you're having a good run. You know, um, that having a little moment like that, uh, the question that we were trying to get at is like, are those completely inconsequential or, or do they matter? Mm-hmm. It turns out they matter. So um, great. It's really encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. And there had been some few studies on informal meditation practice, but it was so hard to draw any conclusions from them. And, and I think the, the lucky part in our, in our particular data set was that we had that measure of frequency, how f- not just did you engage in informal meditation practice today, but how, how frequently, and that really helped us get a better handle on it. Thank you for that, because that, that is a very important um, point for a lot of people, given the conditions of daily life and uh, all of that. And I want to hear from you, if possible, about the burgeoning field of loving-kindness research since it is it's sort of like uh, the interest that was sparked in mindfulness as a, as a quality and as a modality of, of 
as a methodology was much earlier. And it feels like uh, something has happened in the last few years that uh, has made loving kindness and compassion research uh, be much more available or interesting to people somehow. Yeah, yeah, that's true. What you're, what you've picked up is definitely true, and I think it 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 patterns something that we've seen in the science of psychology as well. That, um, you know, I was mentioning earlier that there was a time when emotions could not be studied, mm-hmm. um, and then that is because there was this, you know, early twentieth century emphasis on behaviorism, which is the only things that matter are observable. Mm-hmm. And with that zeitgeist, we couldn't even study, you know, attention or thinking. <laughs> Those mm-hmm. things were like banished concepts. But um, in the 1960s, cognitive psychology uh, was born. People saying, no, thoughts matter. You know, how people attend matters. And that was, there was this big, uh, you know, what's called the cognitive revolution in my field. And, but even with that, emotions were not allowed. And that was way way too squishy or soft or fluffy. Mm -hmm. So emotions, emotion science, or the kind of the affective revolution happened a good two decades later. So I think we kind of saw the similar thing where um, Westerners, Western scientists, saw in the contemplative practices, well, here's the thing that we can talk about over here and still seem scholarly, <laughs> which is <laughs> attention, states mm-hmm. of attention. Because there was already a, a receptive and built science of cognitive psychology that could receive that um, perspective. And I think that the uh, uh, affective science needed to grow a little bit before loving kindness meditation could really find a a, uh, a level of interest. Um, uh, so that that sort of let the cognitive states in the door first <laughs> happened in psychology, as well as in uh, I think the way meditation has been introduced to the West, and um, so that um i it's been so gratifying to see how much uh how many studies you know that come out in the the scientific journal mindfulness that are about compassion and loving kindness mm-hmm. um i uh um as you know the the one of the first larger studies of loving kindness meditation larger meaning it was you know with not with a patient population and it had more than 100 people instead of you know, um, a handful of people with chronic pain. That was that first study. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, having seen that there wasn't any work on this, I, there was a point where I'd heard there was another group um, doing some loving kindness research. And, I'm, <laughs> and this is where my competitive <laughs> spirit came in. It's like, I want the first citation <laughs> in this area. And, uh, you know, who knows? There were two papers on, on, loving kindness meditation that first appeared in 2008. And, um, you know, so I was up there in the, uh, among the first two, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that competitive spirit is, uh, you know, it hits me when I'm playing cards too. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
But since then, it I mean, there's whole, you know, meta-analyses and yeah. work in this area. Yeah. And that's just, um, I love it. It's just so gratifying to see. So it really does feel like, um, oh, you use this phrase, a, a boot kicked in the door. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah where, who, who's... Bruce Springsteen said that when, um, about the first time he ever heard Bob Dylan's music. Ah, yes. He was maybe 15 <laughs> or something, riding in the car with his mother and a song came on the radio and he said it was like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. <laughs> I and love then that. Said, then my mother said, that man can't sing. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we all get excited about different things. In life, yeah. You know? Yeah. But that's such a great uh, metaphor. I feel like, you know, there was, um, you know, once, once more and more people felt like, oh yeah, this can be studied. So then, then a lot of people yeah. started investing in it, and so it's really um, become a whole field of, of contemplative science. It's really, you know, and it's so exacting for non-scientists, and I'm sure for scientists as well, is to live it. But um, one of the things that happened when you and I were doing this presentation at the Rubin Museum was that um, we got into a conversation about uh, you had said something like. It feels to me that it's important for somebody to have some kind of positive experience within a few weeks of doing starting the practice because we want them to continue. You know, you can't say, uh, unlike some people I've heard, you know, like some studies are are based on a total of five minutes of, of an intervention. And I think I can't remember the first five minutes of my practice, you know, like that's not fair. And uh, there's a lot that's not fair about that kind of expectation of oneself. And and you said it's very hard for people because in the classical unfolding of the practice, you spend the whole beginning part pretty much just doing loving kindness for yourself, which for us can be so so difficult. And and so I said to you, why don't you just change the order? And, yeah. and so I don't feel I can do that because I'm trying to replicate what's going on. I mean, I understand you feel a little differently about the flexibility to do that now, but I was sitting there thinking, oh, look at that. You know, we have such different purposes. Right. I would change the order in 10 seconds. Right, right. Yeah, well, I I think I got um, a little worried about whether I, as a scientist, could tinker with the loving-kindness practices because the first study we did, we left out the difficult person (laughs) because I thought that, oh, that's going to bring people down. Let's not do that one. Um, and, uh, and then, um, I think it was after that I met you and we had talked about, you know, and then Mary Brantley and we talked about how, you know, actually that can be really a helpful place for people to practice. And so I thought, let's let the experts, (laughs) let's Mm -hmm. let the meditation experts guide that. But the, um, yeah, I do think that, um, getting that initial, we actually have some, um, studies to to show this that if the first taste of meditation practice for someone who's a novice mm-hmm. includes just a little more positive emotion, mm-hmm. like they're kind of leaning into cultivating a positive state, that that actually leads them to pick up those guided meditations a little more frequently over the next couple of weeks, and it it kind of helps create the the motivation and the steam to mm-hmm. keep going. Um, so having those awareness of those pleasant states um, 
can can help people build a practice. We tested this by introducing some people by random assignment, introducing some people to the idea of prioritizing positivity. You know, just kind of leaning towards it a little bit, letting it letting it grow and build. Like that's a good thing. It's not selfish or a waste of time. Um, whereas other people, we just didn't share that idea about kind of leaning in and, and letting the positive experiences grow. And then these were all novices. Then we um, introduced them to a guided meditation of either loving kindness or mindfulness. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter which one in this particular study. Mm-hmm. And um, those who had had that intention to prioritize the good feeling or kind of lean into it were like 20% um, uh, more likely or no, what was it? They're, they're, the frequency of their meditation practice was 20% more. And they each time they meditated, they meditated for a little bit longer uh, than the others. And that that's, we think how, you know, new habits build. So, you know, when people are starting, I think it is important to change it up so mm-hmm. that you can experience some of the good stuff early, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. just think, I got to slog through this. Because <laughs> <laughs> if, you know, that's the, even if you're, the new habit you want to build is, you know, becoming more physically active, this, mm-hmm. the same mm-hmm. advice would hold. It's like, start where it's enjoyable. Um, yeah. And don't be afraid of that enjoyableness mm-hmm. because it's not, it actually can help you um, build good good habits that are going to be uh, way better for you in the long run to, to um, grow from there. I mean, there are, you got to have your wits about you because if you're just going for the, the high of pleasure, you might get addicted to something that's not a wholesome activity. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can become a gambler or an addict yeah. or whatever, but you know, so you got to keep your wits about you, but for things that you know in your mind and, uh, that, or, you know, in, in terms of, uh, the world's wisdom that that's a healthy behavior. How am I going to build that into my life? You know, f- engineering in the enjoyment is actually a really smart approach. It's wonderful. And, and just as a last question, um, I'm wondering if you have current research that you're embarking on or you're in the midst of right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually just headed into a sabbatical year and very excited about it because um, what I have been up to since my last sabbatical was really trying to build in the scientific evidence that um, fills in all the hypotheses, tests all the hypotheses that are in the book Love 2.0. And so since then, we've found that, yeah, these uh, co-experience, positive emotions, positivity resonance. It's good for our individual mental health. It's good for our relationship health. It's good for our physical health in terms of it's predicting, you know, uh, uh, trajectories of low chronic illness over the next decade. Mm-hmm. And, and then if you look at people over 30 years, it predicts how long they live. <laughs> and, um, it's also good for public health, which we found that um, because uh, the experience of, of positivity, resonance, love, or these co-experienced positive emotional states makes people kinder, more giving, more mm-hmm. thoughtful, uh, more humble, that those are the kinds of uh, tendencies, uh, pro-social tendencies that 
predicted who during the pandemic wore a mask and washed their hands and mm-hmm. took care of public, you know, behaviors that we know protect public mm-hmm. health. So um, I feel like what I'd done in the last few years is really look at what are all the different consequences of this state. What I want to do next is look more at the precursors. How can we set the conditions better? for people to experience uh, these states. I think a lot of it is about creating contexts where people feel safe, but I'm also interested in, you know, just so much thinking of, you know, where we've been through since 2020 with George Floyd and um, uh, bigger social, social structural factors, really trying to look at what are the, what are the kinds of communities that best support people experiencing uh, love, connection with people in their town, not just, you know, your inner circle of trusted friends, but just like, you know, out and about, you feel connection with people. Well, we've found so far that economic inequality is really bad for that, (laughs) especially if you uh, are on the low income side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the you know, with this just growing out of control economic inequality that we're, um, we in, in the U.S. and around the world are on that trajectory. It's, we're finding that those are community conditions that undermine positive connections in community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what, what is it, how can we address that? Um, um, I'm interested in, you know, if communities in, invest in the arts or build pub, public spaces that feel more safe are those antidotes to those situations. So I'm really interested in the personal but also social structural conditions that help set the stage for better community living. I'm very interested in this connection love that people feel with what scientists will call weak ties, you know, the people you don't know very well, strangers, mm-hmm. acquaintances, coworkers. You know, those those end up being really important for people's health and mental health and mm. and they're they're hard to cultivate when people don't feel uh safe or seen. And mm-hmm. so we need really need to work on on that as a broader society. So I would like to help unlock those um, perspectives on how to do that best at a at a at a big scale collective societal level. It's fabulous. It's like uh, with directions, they could all go or kind of endless, but hopefully the ones that potentially could make a difference in people's lives and, and the degree of happiness will be will be really useful and can continue to expand its sort of virtuous cycle, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think one thing that really draws me to try to build a little more of the the scientific base in this area is, you know, and this probably is a bit true in contemplative practices too, for positive psychology, one big criticism is that uh, all the focus is on the individual, what the individual should do to be happier and healthier, you know, mm-hmm. so there's, there's, there are limits to what an individual can do in yeah, societies yeah. doing yeah. things that are, you know, making it a lot harder. So we need to look at both, both yeah. all the, all the levels, not just focus on uh, what you can do as an individual. I mean, that's huge and important because yeah, yeah. we need to find a way to help ourselves and others cope with the world that we're faced with, but we also need to 
think about well, what is what would be the, an ideal world or an ideal community? Well, thank you so much, and a big thank you to everyone who's listening. To learn more about Barbara's work, you can visit the website positiveemotions.org. It's P O S I T I V E E M O T I O N S dot O R G. And get yourself a copy of her books, Love 2.0 and Positivity. She has great book titles as well as great books. But, you know, the book titles are a matter of do I have sympathetic joy or do I just get down to envy? I don't know. <laughs> a big thank you to everyone listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.